This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Well, we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 this morning. As we walk through this passage, I want you to be thinking about what, what your first thought is when you think the end of the world is coming. Have you ever, uh, like, had... Got it. Sorry. Have you ever had a, uh, somebody say to you, like, something like, um, the end of the world is, is soon, or like, Jesus is about to come back? Have you ever experienced that? So I, I, this has been like my whole life, I think I've heard similar things to that. But something happened when I was 10 years old that was pretty, pretty climactic and, and, and a lot of people kind of got behind it. Did, does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm dating myself to see how old or young y'all think I am. 10 years old. Guess? 9-11? Ah, oh, come on, cat. I'd be, like, what, how old would I be? No, well, not 2001. I was born in 90. Oh, wait, that, oh, that's close. Okay, fair. Okay, that's close. <laughs> I thought you were saying I was, like, two right now. Uh, no, uh, Y2K. That was climactic, too. That was pretty, cur- I mean, obviously, that was terrible. Um, but Y2K, y'all remember that? Anybody, like, get all the food and the water and, like, sit in your basement when it was happening? Apparently, everybody's way more normal than I was. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but, but seriously, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on that time. People were praying. People were predicting. People thought the world was ending. All this stuff was happening at that time, like... And, and even from then, like, reading the Left Behind books, uh, watching Left Behind movies, uh, watching Prophecy After Prophecy, even, like Kat said, 2011, no, 2001, sorry. Uh, man, my mind's way off with that. Uh, and then, but also, like, uh, 2012, y'all remember that big prediction that the world was going to end, right? Uh, yeah, so all these things, like, shaped me a little bit. I think especially watching Left Behind over and over when I was young, I watched it every night, uh, shaped a little bit of how I thought about the end of the world coming. So I think what I saw was two responses primarily. Uh, First would be an ethical response, and second would be uh, false responses of prophecy. What it would be like is this, like the world's going to end on this day, and then it doesn't end, and what happens? Oh, well, something happened, so now the world's going to end on this day. And then, no, no, it's going to end on this day. Do you, you, have you all watched that before? You see it with, like, uh, on evangelism things, on uh, uh, radios and stuff like that. I watched that happen series after series, and honestly, theologically, I didn't realize at the time, I think I was processing through it, but how much it affects you. Because what, here's what you do. If I'm going to live in light of heaven, then I've got to ask the question, what does it mean if the world's going to end? For me, how's that going to change how I live right now if I know the world is going to end soon? Uh, a lot of people would respond this way, and you might know this if you're a little younger. Uh, YOLO, you only live once, right? Uh, the 60s had the what? 
sexual revolution, right? Um, there, there's this internal transition thing that happens with human beings as we're going through this phase of like, if I'm not going to be young anymore, if the world is going to end, then I've got to live it up now. And so these false ethics come out of like, I've got to live different now in light of the world ending, and it's not going to be a good way to live. Uh, it's going to be self-pleasing, self-righteous, uh, uh, not righteous in God's sight. And so all of a sudden you start doing uh, wicked things before the end of the world. You start prophesying before the end of the world and saying all these things are happening. One, I think one of the worst uh, examples, like uh, as I was growing up, was uh, I don't remember who it was, an individual, I think I was like in the car with or something, I don't know. But uh, the, the individual had, like, I think a McDonald's bag or something. And this might be pretty typical in the South, to be fair. But they threw the McDonald's bag out the window and said, it doesn't matter. This world's going to end anyways, and it's all going to be burned up. And I was like, I mean, it, started, you know, it starts to kind of, like, develop in your mind, right? Like, you start to think through it in your mind, like, is that how I'm supposed to live? Like, this world doesn't matter. My body doesn't matter. Do with it what I want. Do with the world what I want. And you gotta, you got to check yourself and ask yourself as Christians, are we living like that? Or are we living knowing that if heaven is coming and heaven is here, then it's going to change everything about the way that I live right now? No matter what the date is or when it happens, all those different things, it changes how I live right now because I know that forever I'm going to be with God in His presence, so now I'm going to show the hope that I have. I'm going to show that hope that I know I'm going to live with Him. So watch me live now because it's changed how I will I would live now because of what's gonna, what my life's going to look like forever. And so I, I want to challenge you this morning as we walk through this passage to be thinking about if you knew that the end of the world was near, how would it change the way you lived? If you knew that in one month the world was going to end, what would, what would you do differently? Who would you talk to? What would you say? How would you encourage? All these things. All right, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through uh, 4, verse 11 with me. We're going to be moving through these passages, y'all. First main point, a challenge to love your enemies. This is a challenge to love your enemies well. So listen to this passage. It says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Sympathetic, like-minded. Now, look around the room for just a moment. Look in here. All right? This church is full of believers who love one another, encourage one another, walk with one another. We're in this journey together. When it says that we are like-minded and sympathetic with one another, compassionate with one another, what it's saying is we're all in this thing together to agree that we're going we're gonna to walk with one another, encourage one another, and grow with one another. So if you look around and you don't know the name of somebody in this, in this area right now, I encourage you, get to know the people that are in this room. Because these are the ones that you are like-minded with, sympathetic with, encouraging one another, growing with one another. And if you don't know their name or don't know their spiritual gift or, or the struggle that they're in, how are we going to walk together? How are we going to encourage one another? You might not know every single detail about every single person in this room, but at least know one way that you can use your gift, one, re- one way that you can use your life experience to encourage another brother and sister in this room. Let's be like-minded in how we love one another. 
Verse 9 says, though, this is how to live it out, though, y'all. This is hard. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. The practical way that lives out with not, in, not using evil for evil or insult for evil, uh, insult is, is the same way as Jesus when he says, turn the other cheek, or when Jesus heals Malchus' ear after Peter cuts it off. It's the way that we respond to one another. It changes. Now, of course, as we've said before, our responsibility is to defend the oppressed, to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, to speak for those who cannot speak, to be the father to the fatherless, being the hands and feet of Jesus. So we, have to, we are called to do all these things on earth, but it, uh, uh, what we have to do is analyze, are we in God's will? And if we are in God's will, we're going to suffer and be persecuted. If we suffer and persecute in God's will, do it to the point where you're not uh, 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 against God's will or hurting the oppressed. Defend the oppressed and the weak. But if you're able, and it's not a threat to your life, take persecution and take suffering, knowing that the way that you respond will transform the person who's, who's giving that suffering and persecution to you. Now again, if you're defenseless and you can't defend yourself, you need help and support. Get a way out. All those things. But if you're in a place where you're okay and you can respond with righteousness and gentleness and compassion, uh, compassion and control and all these good things, if you can respond in that way, do respond in that way. If someone comes in to, to insult you, don't respond with insulting. Respond with love. Right? That's different than if somebody comes to you, uh, you with a gun or with a knife. That's a different response, right? Okay? So what we're doing is we're extending love with the goal of transformation so that that individual no longer insults or no longer shows evil. There's a goal in this. Verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. This is a quote straight from Psalm chapter 34 where at the beginning of it, it says, uh, my soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that's David in a persecuted, suffering moment saying, I'm going to worship. I'm going to choose to worship, not to curse. I'm going to choose to worship, not to get away from the calling God has given me. I'm going to stay courageous in the calling God's given me, and I'm going to worship. And so it's a challenge for us in our calling to love those who are around us, even when they're our enemies, to love those who are around us. All right. Second, we see this as Christ's example. Uh, he gives us an example of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Get this. Who then will harm you if, it's so critical, you are devoted to what is good? It doesn't say who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is bad. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So when we're in a difficult situation, like uh, you may have come in here today angry, you might be mad at your spouse, your kids. You may be uh, making decisions that are awful. You may be persecuted at your workplace or in your family. Maybe people are making fun of you for the decision you've made. They think you're stupid for being a Christian. Uh, they think you are a bigot for being a Christian. Whatever it is. And you're in here today and you're like, Matt, 
I don't know how to respond to this situation. To challenge you to do this. Respond in a way that requires you to give a defense for your response. And that defense is because Christ loves me and therefore I love you. Respond in a way that it makes people go, what? Why would you do that? Like, why would you act that way? And you have to go, because Christ loved me, so I love you. Don't, res- don't respond to people in a way that you have to defend it and go, well, I just made a mistake. I, I've just been an angry person. I've, I've, I'm just jealous. I'm just, okay, God will forgive you of all these things, but my challenge is to you is to live in a way that people are going, I don't understand why you're acting this way. And you get to go, because Christ loved me and I love you. And so we give a defense for the gospel, uh, a defense of the gospel, um, by the way that we live and by the way they speak, what we do uh, with, our, with our lives and with our money and with our jobs and with uh, our family and all of these different things. Okay, so it says, Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Because I know that some, some people are in here today and you're like, man, but I just, I'm so tired of them feeling like they're doing what is right. And I know they're not. I know it's evil and wicked. And I don't, I'm just tired of seeing them hurt people. And I'm tired of all these things. If you want to put somebody to shame, though, Scripture's telling us what to do. Act in a way that they go, man, I'm a jerk and they're not. I'll be, I'll be straight up raw with y'all right now. Like, Man, I was preaching last week. <laughs> I'm preaching last week, and I'm like, man, just boost the people, lift everybody up, encourage people. And I had somebody who I love dearly. Uh, they, they confronted me that week and said, hey, I felt like your words were hurtful. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how can I even preach what I preach when I don't live it out? Y'all, I don't ever want you to think, first of all, that I'm perfect. I know you know that I'm not. But I don't ever want you to think that I'm up here just saying, you got to live this way or you got to change your life. Here's what I'm telling us is, if we're not all in this together, we're not going to do this together. I need you. I need you to forgive me when I'm wrong. I need you to inspire me to be better. I need you to challenge me to do what is right. I need you to look across this room and challenge somebody else to do what is right. I need you to walk over to somebody and inspire them to do what is right encouraging everyone with goodness. Because there's moments in your life where you're going to look out and you're going to see somebody say, man, you need to step it up. And you can either go, I've been put to shame and I'm, going to, I'm a failure and I'm done. Or you can step up and change course and change action. And I'm challenging you, brothers and sisters, to look across this room and encourage one another and love one another in a way that will bring people to Christ and people will go, man, I want that. I want that. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Again, note down the critical part of here is if that should be God's will. If it is not God's will, do not do it. Don't suffer if you're not in God's will. All right? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to it. What a powerful statement, y'all. It's so dense with the gospel right there. Now, there's, there's a passage, a part in there that's a little difficult to understand, but if you just look at the overall passage, you're like, man, it's so strong because the gospel is like forefront there. Jesus Christ suffering once for all that you might not suffer and endure sin in your life, transformed by his mercy and grace. Now you can be a defender of the gospel as you live out and suffer and persecuted in this earth. You experience pain, not for no reason, but for the sake of the gospel and God's will. You get to proclaim the gospel. And so in the middle of that, there's this difficult part to understand about Noah. Now, there's two options I'm going to give you today. First one is it could be Jesus pre-incarnate. It could be that Jesus was there at the time of Noah, speaking through Noah. Or it could be that Jesus was Noah at that moment, uh, probably just speaking through him. But many people think that it might actually be Jesus in that moment preaching the gospel to these people. Repent and believe, uh, or get on, you know, you know, repent and believe and get on this ark so that you'd be saved from uh, uh, destruction. And that that was actually Jesus in that time, that he was present there with Noah. The second option like the Apostles' Creed, uh, is that he descended down into hell and proclaimed the gospel over the prisoners in hell, uh, not offering them necessarily a ability to respond to the gospel and believe, but just rather declaring the gospel. Uh, the reason is this is for this is there's a difference between the word keruxon and uongalitso in Greek, uh, in Greek or keruso and uongalitso. Uh, one means to... Um, like declare and proclaim a victory, and the other means to offer the good news, share good news. Uangalitza, share good news. Well, you can hear the word in there for English, right? Evangelism. That's the word. Uangalitza is evangelism uh, in English. And so we talk about sharing good news. Well, that's not what Jesus has gone down to hell to do, uh, rather to proclaim uh, the gospel and victory uh, that he has defeated the grave over those who are in hell. All right, so could be one of those two options. I, uh, I don't, here's, here's the thing. If you look to your right and your left and you disagree, it's not going to affect your salvation. What's critical to the person to your right and your left, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's reigning there forever? So those are critical components to this. Whether or not you understand uh, it, that it was Noah pre-incarnate or Noah, uh, Jesus, sorry, Jesus uh, after the cross, uh, maybe we'll find out in heaven. That'd be awesome, but it doesn't give us the specifics in this passage. What it's, prob- what it's probably trying to say to us is this. Just like the ark saved uh, through the water, so baptism saves through the water. Now, we know that baptism is not our salvation, but that it shows us what? Romans, uh, chapter, sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, buried with Christ, raised to walk in the newness of life. Just like with the ark, the water buries into death, but yet there's newness of life through the ark. Just like with Moses. Same word for ark. It's for those reeds that saved Moses out of the river. Um, So you have uh, uh, this idea of being saved out of the water uh, through baptism, through the ark, and all these different things. Really cool that Peter picks up on this and shows it to us. So my challenge to you is this. See the gospel here, believe the gospel, and know that through baptism and through salvation of your souls, you have a defense that's worthy to be preached like this to this generation. 
Because that's what he's setting up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He's setting it up for this generation. Because that was Noah's generation that was wicked and evil. Look at this one. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carry on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Man. Look at verse 5 again. They will judge an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and... They de- sorry, they will give an account to judge the living and the dead. What a verse. You know what, you know what one of the things I love about this verse is... We have this challenge in this passage to be compassionate, merciful, loving, kind to those who are evil and wicked towards us, to those who slander us. But then it comes back and it's like, you don't have to judge them. Dude, that takes so much pressure off of us as Christians. You don't have to look out at the world who's not in this, in this, uh, who aren't believers. You don't have to look out at them and go, man, how can I figure out how to judge them enough that they change? Instead, this passage tells us to do it with gentleness and kindness, be compassionate and gracious, in the hopes that what? They'll see your mercy and turn to the mercy of God. In the hopes that they'll see your mercy and turn to the mercy of God. We, we can live knowing that one day our God, who is the God uh, who has vengeance in His hands, they will be in front of the throne of God and will be accountable for the things that they do on earth. So I don't have to bring vengeance. I don't have to bring insult to insult. Because when they're kneeling down before the throne of God and they hear the words from God to depart from me, it's going to be a far greater judgment, declaration than any words you could ever say. Vengeance is the Lord's. The words that you use towards enemies are nothing compared to the words that my God can use against them. So we can hand them over. Hand them over. Hand the judgment over. These are yours, God. The persecution, it's yours. I'm receiving it, but I'm giving it over to you. You do with it what you want, which allows him to do what? Allows God to give forgiveness or vengeance. Because in our hearts, don't we hold that? Don't we harbor that sometimes? Like, like if God forgives your enemy, aren't you like, that's not fair? Well, that's because why? We want to hold vengeance. But it's the moment we give that vengeance over, the moment we give that forgiveness over, we can say, it's not mine to determine whether they should receive uh, a wrath of God or forgiveness of God. Because praise the Lord, it wasn't mine to determine whether I should receive wrath or forgiveness. Amen? So we're handing it over to the Lord saying, verse 5, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. So that, although they may, uh, might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. All right, last part. In suffering, do good. It's my challenge for you. In suffering, do good. Verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore. And end of all things is near. There it is. Have you ever thought through that in your mind? Like, the end of all things is near. Jesus is coming back. That's where Peter is headed. 
And, and Nick Capadora is going to bring the message next week, and he's going to continue in this vein. The end of the, uh, uh, of the world, of, of our days, all that stuff is near. So how should we live? Here it is. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Be alert, sober-minded. You can't, why, why should we not be uh, distorted in our minds? Whether it's how we think and how we act or how, or how drunk we are or any distortion of any medical, uh, uh, um, any illegal substance that we put in our minds and our bodies. We should be thinking clearly, not unclearly, so that we know that if Christ is coming, it should, I should live different. I don't want to be clouded in the judgment that I use knowing that my Savior is coming back for me. Right? Okay, so sober-minded for prayer so that we can pray to God and not be clouded in our minds. Verse 8, above all. So above all, above all other things, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now this, this verse is a little hard to understand too because it's like, can my love for you forgive me? Well, there's, I think there's two options here, and I'm going to kind of give you a third that's a blend, okay? But what the early church believed this to be, if you look at early church fathers and what they were writing and how the church believed, it, they took this as, let's say all of us are in the room together, and one of you hurts somebody else, says something mean, does something behind somebody's back, steals something, whatever it is. You can ask for forgiveness, you know, apologize, hey, I'm sorry, uh, and they forgive you. But what's next is, is this passage is telling us is love, constant love. Because when you have constant love towards one another, it covers a multitude of sins within the body of Christ. All right, so that's how they, that's how they interpreted it. Now, it makes sense, and it's, it, uh, it's shown clearly, I think, in here, because it's all, all of this is talking about how we love one another, how we're compassionate towards one another, how we suffer well together, uh, how we're kind of encouraging one another in these difficulties. So it makes total sense that what he's saying is, if one of you hurts each other, constantly love each other, and it will cover that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that sin uh, that you committed one towards another. All right? Now, that's the first option. Second option is it has to do something with that uh, if we love, we show ourselves to be true disciples who are forgiven of sins. Now, this makes sense with John 13, 34 through 35 and other passages where it says, uh, new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And by doing this, you so prove that you are my disciples. So we're proving that we are God's disciples by our love for one another. Therefore, this passage is saying that by loving each other, we show that we are forgiven. It's covering a multitude of sins. Um, I think if you take those together, uh, you just simply can say that um, in the body of Christ, when we love one another, uh, we forgive each other. And with Christ, when we love one another, we, sh- we prove to be disciples who are already forgiven. All right, so that's, I think that's how you best understand this passage. Again, I don't think it's going to change whether or not you're saved. I think it's just a good passage for us to really wrestle with and try to understand how can I love constantly towards you in a way that forgives, uh, we forgive one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Verse 10, just as each one uh, has received a gift, use it to serve others as God's stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be one who uh, speaks with uh, God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So verse, uh, uh, verse 8 here says, love one another. Verse 9 is that hospitable, without the complaining. And then it kind of gives you practice. How are we going to do this? 
Because each one of us, like I said at the beginning, each one of us has a gift within us that is supposed to be used to encourage each other. Because the strength that God has given you is to be used as strength for one another. When someone in here feels weak, that we can extend that strength out to someone who feels weak. When someone is lacking in encouragement, we can extend that gift that God has given us to, uh, to one another. And when we speak words to one another, we're speaking with the very words of God to each other. And so how can you love one another well? Use the gift that God has given you to love each other. Use the strength that God has given you to overcome the, the frustrations you have that you walked in here with. The bitterness, the resentment that you walked into this place with. The complaining of the little things in life that disrupt our plans. The God's strength overcoming those frustrations. God's word being poured out in our minds so that we meditate on it and not the things of this world. And man, I, you can't just, man, you just got to love the ending. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You remember what the beginning of that, this, this portion started with? The end of the world is coming, and it concludes with that. Praise be to God forever and ever. Peter knows what he's doing here, y'all. The idea is that even if, the, if you think the end of the world is coming, remember that praise for God is going to continue forever. So I have a challenge for you. Uh, a couple of really practical challenges for you this morning. Because in group settings, I want you to be able to do this in a group setting. Uh, and this is really a culture of our staff that we're trying to, that we work on creating, that we want to ooze out into the culture of our church. And so um, you'll hear me say these things uh, occasionally because you build culture with repetition. So um, for, when you're in a group setting, here, I challenge you to do this. Share your situation. And, and be raw, real vulnerable, all those things. Share your situation with a group of people that you trust, and then ask them for this. Seriously, write, write this down. Write this down. I, I think that if you do this, it's going to change the way you think about group settings and, and accountability. Write this down. Ask them for, for, uh, for a reality check. We don't, we don't really like reality checks. We like to share our situation, but we don't want a reality check of our situation. You know what I'm saying? I, share your situation, ask for a reality check, and then ask for encouragement. Or if you want to be great at this, if you're the person listening, don't make them ask. Give them a reality Oh, careful here. You have to be careful giving a reality check before they ask for it. But <laughs> um, Try to share the reality and then bring that encouragement around. You might have to flip those two sometimes, though, too. <laughs> give some encouragement, and then give a reality check. But brothers and sisters, we need to be able to do this with one another without getting angry at one another. We have to be able to do this. If we can't do it in here, there's no way we're going to do it out there. Sharing our situation, giving good reality checks, bringing great encouragement to one another, and offering great next steps. That's my last thing for you. Say, say to somebody, hey, can you, just, can you just tell me what you think I should do next? Give me the wisdom that you think I ought to do with my very next step. What do I do? Just put it in front of people. So that's in a group setting. You're facing persecution, you're facing suffering, you're facing insults, you, uh, you have uh, uh, difficulty with a, with a spouse or difficulty with your children or with a coworker, and you're like, man, I don't know what to do, and, and you find yourself like complaining and looking at the bad things. Man, stop that, cut that out. That's not what Christ wants for you, and bring in this healthy process 
of here's what I'm doing, give me reality, encourage me, and show me what I ought to do next. Of course, it's saturated with God's Word and God's Spirit. You should be giving God's gift, God's strength, and God's words in this process. Now, but many of you might say, well, Matt, what about when I wake up in the morning and I'm discouraged? What about when I go to sleep at night and I'm alone? I'm still discouraged in those moments. What, what do you want me to do then when I'm not with my group? All right, here you go. First, start with this. Give thanks, for God. Give thanks to God for the good. Give thanks to God for the good. Start there. Don't, don't mosey your way to it. Don't figure out how you can get there at the end. Like you lift up all these prayers to God and then you're like, but, 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 but thank you. Start with the thank you. You know what I'm saying? Start with the thanks for what is good because it forces you to look at what is good in every situation. Identifying those things that God has for you. Because if you're in God's will, if you're in God's will, you can find something good in there. Now, if you're outside of God's will and you're being persecuted and suffering and you're not finding good things in there, man, you got to get out of that situation, find God's will, and find the good in there. All right, so first step, thank, give thanks to, uh, to God for the good. Second, pray for the bad. What do we typically do when we respond to difficult things in our life? What's that first response? I think about it like this. Stub toe Christianity. All right. <laughs> you walk in and all of a sudden there's like, man, my son. Oh, my sweet little son. There was a uh, drill, power drill on the ground. And it was facing towards him. And he's walking towards it. And I'm like, I see it coming, man. And I'm like, no. And he just, bam. But I got to it right at the point where he stopped. And so his foot stops, and the like drill bit's like between his toes. And I'm like, <laughs> first of all, bad dad for not having shoes on your son. But yeah, you know, we were building something for my wife, okay? Um, so, but stub toe Christianity is that time where you stub your toe, what's the first response? What's the first thing you say after you stub your toe? Now, there's a varying range. <laughs> Man, people actually shouted things out at the outdoor service. I was like, "Woo! Good thing we ain't on live stream." <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, yeah. So you you think about what's the next thing you say after you stub your toe? And now that's a minor thing, but think about everything that you faced this week. What's your first response after you face something difficult? And as I've said before, it often will tell you what you believe in and who you believe in. A lot of times people use that opportunity to curse God. And what I'm challenging you to do is to praise God, thank God in every situation, to change mindset, to look at what God has that is good for you in the middle of difficult situations. And especially don't let a stub toe change your day. Especially don't let little things in your life dictate whether you're happy or not. You know, we, when we started the outdoor service today, the sun was shining. It was beautiful. It was actually pretty warm. Casey looked at me. She was like, man, I didn't expect it to be so hot out here. I was like, yeah, that jerk pastor said it was going to be 64 degrees. <laughs> it was so hot outside. Uh, man, it was, it was like, you know, way too hot. But anyways, um, the sun was just beaming down. And then here comes the clouds. And all of a sudden, it got a little chilly. And I was like, oh, vindication is from the Lord. <laughs> this got a little cloudy, and the sun was like blocked a little bit, and the wind was coming through. And I was like, man, think about it. Like, your day can be clouded out by something so small if you're not careful. You know what I'm talking about? Like that stub toe Christianity where all of a sudden something that is not huge in your life dictates your life. Praise God for what is good. Uh, pray to God for what is bad. 
Uh, praise God that he's in every single situation. Don't forget that step. Because when you're in a difficult time in your life, don't, don't, don't forget that your God is there with you. That he walked through every suffering in life already. That he was put on a cross already. He's with you in the suffering. Humble yourself to God's plan and rise up to God's plan. That's got to be, you got to do both. Humble yourself to God's plan is this. God, what do you want for me? What do not, not what do I want for myself? And now that's the first critical step because you can't rise up to God's plan without first humbling to God's plan. The second though, rising up to God's plan is you standing courageously in the middle of God's plan to trust what he has for you and not back down. I'm standing here because this is God's will for my life, and I'm not swaying to the right or left. I'm not going to back down from the persecution or suffering, from the insults or the ridicule, from the evil that comes at me. I'm standing here. Why? Because it's God's will for my life. Don't set your feet down so firm like that if it's not God's will for your life. Humble yourself to find God's will. Rise up and be courageous when you find it, and stand firm in it. Don't back down. As the passage says, it literally says, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Now, it's really helpful to think about this. As the band comes forward, it's really helpful to think through um, the opposite of that, right? The opposite would be this. Suppress the good. And that looks like when you're with your coworkers, family, friends, whatever, whoever it is, like something good happens and you're like, yeah, but have you seen this bad thing? Like you have a great friend and you're like, yeah, but I don't have enough. It's like never, nothing's ever enough, as we've talked about with contentment before. You're not content, but rather you're uh, discontent. You don't find, you know, you kind of find complacency in your life. And you start to suppress what is good in your life. And you start to praise what is evil in your life. And all people hear from you is what is bad in your life. And the first thing that you do when you walk up to somebody is, man, well, this is going on in my life right now. And it's like, man, do you, are you thanking God for what is good or is you, are, you, are you praising what is evil? And so uh, often what we do is we suppress the good and we curse to God for the bad. We doubt God's presence in both of those. Where you at, God? Especially when we're not in God's will. It's like we're way outside of God's will. We're suffering. We're experiencing all this pain. And then we're like, where are you, God? And God's like, I'm right where I had you. Where are you? You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, come back into God's will. Find his will. Stand courageously in it and know that he's there with you. And don't doubt that he's there with you. Don't suppress the good. Don't praise the bad. Don't doubt, doubt God's presence in the middle of suffering, wickedness, and evil. Don't pride yourself in your own plans. That's what we often do, right? I've got a good plan. I've got a way to get out of this. I can figure this out. I can do this. And we start priding ourselves in it. We start denying God's plan for our life. And we find ourselves way outside of what God wants for us. So if you're solo at home, if you've got time, spend with the Lord. Reset your mind. And so uh, uh, your gospel response this morning is get out of that stub-toe Christianity. Get out of that stub-toe Christianity where you're telling everybody about every little thing that goes on that's bad in your life and you shift that to telling everybody about everything that is good that's going on in your life. And I'm not just telling you to be optimistic. Well, here's what I'm telling you to be. View heaven. Don't view hell. I'm not telling you just to be optimistic. People are like, man, y'all are just, you're just way too optimistic. You should be a realist. All right, let me really tell you what's happening. Heaven is coming. Heaven is here. 
I'm forgiven of my sin, and I'm restored from my suffering. I can trust God in every situation. He's here with me. The God who's stronger than anything in this world walks with me and speaks through me. He's with me in, in the people that are around me, the brothers and sisters who love me. I have great and wonderful people around me and a strong family, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that. Like, that's where I'm going to stay. I know the heaven is coming. And look, if something happens to my job, if something happens to my health, if something happens to my family, I can't rely on my own strength in those moments. I can't. When everything's good, it's easy to say, man, this is so good, stuff to hope Christianity kind of goes away. Everything's good. When everything gets difficult, though, I don't want to walk back and go, okay, well, I'm just going to rely on my own strength now. So why would I rely on my own strength when everything's good? Don't just rely on God when things turn bad. Don't just rely on God when you stub your toe. And surely don't just curse God when you stub your toe. And so, what, what are you going through today? What are you struggling with today? What are you frustrated about today? And I know, man, look, look I know. My, my wife knows. She's out there listening right now. The sweet little baby Hattie. Life's not, not easy. It's frustrating. It's hard. It hurts. People die. People get sick. Man, evil, wicked things hurt. Anxiety's real. Depression's real. Suicides happen. Man, this is not, it's not easy. And I don't want to paint some sugar-coated, like, reality of optimism. Instead, what I'm telling you is this. In every single one of those difficult situations, you can look at those as the end of the world, or you can remember that heaven is coming. And I hope that the hope of Christ, my hope for you is that the hope of Christ, that heaven is coming, is far greater than the hell in this world. And so I challenge you again this morning. Place your faith in God. Have your hope in eternity. Don't fear the end of the world. Fear hell. Worship God and find security in heaven. All right, let me uh, pray for you and we'll continue to worship. God, you are so good. We are so, uh, we've been so wicked and evil in our lives, and yet you've extended us such grace and mercy. So I pray, Father, that everybody in this room um, who experiences wickedness and evil from the world will share the same kind of compassion that you shared towards us, that we will respond with compassion and love to the world. I pray, God, that you would give us strength to stand firm in your will, to not budge from what you've called us to do. Father, we trust you, we love you, we need you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.